0: The Truth of Poetry. Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey. Produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 5. So as a way of apologizing for what I'm not going to do this morning, let me remind you that the topic of our series, our double series, is The Truth of Poetry and the Poetry of Truth, and we're going to look at the epic of Virgil, the Aeneid, and the Gospel of Luke. And I'm using Virgil's Aeneid. I'm exploiting it, really. I think I'm exploiting it legitimately, Mm -hmm. but I'm exploiting it for the purpose of thinking about poetry, classical poetry, and the kind of truth-telling of which it was capable. And what happens to poetry and to all cultural enterprises as a result of the crucifixion, resurrection, and gospel revelation. So that's my focus, and the poem is there to give us something to help us think about that. This morning, what we should be talking about, if we were following the agenda, is we should be talking about this very complex and fascinating book four, which is the story of the Tragedy of Dido, you could call it, because it's filled with psychological insights. And I'm hardly going to talk about it all today because I'm, I'm less interested in psychological insights. I'm more interested in anthropological things. I'll spend a little time on it. I think it's psychological verisimilitude is helpful, but the poem's anthropological significance is much greater than its psychological validity. So uh, I'm going to be looking at some other things. In the background of everything we're talking about, there is violence, sacrifice, uh, religion, mystification, etc. And so it's worth noting that we had a terrible example in our culture this week of violence. The Oklahoma City Federal Building was bombed, and the... Eyes and imagination of the American public have been fixed on that event. And um, we're thinking about, it. I'm going to try to say a few things about that event next week because I think there's some aspects of it that are extremely relevant to our topic and worth pointing out. And I think, and I don't say this in any kind of presumption, but I, I think they're not likely to get pointed out. So I'm going to try to point them out uh, next week. But just to mention it in passing this week, at first the assumption was made that this was probably done by Islamic radicals or extremists, which was was not an unreasonable assumption based on certain things that have been going on around the world. I'm I must say I'm relieved in a way that it wasn't. Because the targeting Islamic uh, people, Muslim people, here and abroad, uh, is a pretty easy thing to do. And so you, it's very easy to set up a kind of reciprocal violence. And the whole problem here, as I will talk about next week, the whole problem is the reciprocity of violence. What happened at the federal courthouse in Oklahoma City was the outbreak of reciprocal violence. That violence was retaliatory. Violence, And I'll I'll try to explore that a little bit next week. So the great question, the oldest question in human anthropology, is how do you terminate episodes of violence that have become irreversibly reciprocal, that every act of violence leads to another act of violence, and that you, you go into a kind of a spiral? I think it's a tragedy just as tragic as it would have been no matter who perpetrated it. Nevertheless, the fact that it was done by good old melting pot Americans with probably some cockeyed, distorted Christian fanaticism in the back of their head, at least to some extent lessens the likelihood that uh, we will fall into some cliche and go posse hunting for the victimizers in such a way that would just perpetuate the myth and the violence. Nevertheless, what's interesting, of course, is that and i don't i guess there's not enough known yet about the uh, the beliefs and motives of these people I, at least i don't know them yet i read the paper this morning there's very likely to be some religious fanaticism in there somewhere but when we were thinking well this probably is uh, islamic uh, fanatics or something th- the idea was obviously there would be religious fanaticism in there and one of the things that shocks us i guess we're getting a little used to it now because we have Things happening in Palestine and in Northern Ireland and in various places around the world, where where violence is, is explicitly religious, so maybe we're not quite as shocked as we used to be. But I think we're still shocked by this idea that this seems absolutely absurd. You know that they would be that these people would be doing this kind of violence and and associating it with religion because we think that isn't that crazy? They're religious and they're being violent. I mean, it just doesn't fit, and it reminded me of what I think is one of the funniest things said, and this is a little scapegoating, as all funny things are, uh, but it reminds me of the funniest thing said about George Bush during one of his presidential campaigns, and it was said by this guy Hightower, I forget his name, who was the uh, Texas Agricultural Commissioner. He's a kind of a populist firebrand, you know, and he said of George Bush, referring to his elite socioeconomic status. He said he was born on third and thought he hit a triple. Well, you could say that about us, you see, religiously. You could say the same thing about us, because we are the products of a religious tradition that has been for a long time trying to break away from the old pattern of religion. We're a product of the only religious tradition that has at its heart a very powerful suspicion of religion. And the tradition that has been trying to get away from the old kind of religion for a long, long time, beginning with the prophet in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and so we have now this idea of religion, which is that it has to do with being a moral, leading a moral life and having a conscience and caring for others and being generous and, and selfless and having a relationship with the living God and a prayer life and and uh, contemplative and all that, we have this idea. That's what religion ought to be about. We're totally shocked when we find people associating the word religion or the idea of religion with violence, but it's because we're on third base, you know, and we think we hit a trip. Well, we don't take credit for it necessarily, but we look around, we see what's happening on first base, and over there, they're offering sacrifices, (laughs) and we're saying, wait a minute. We don't realize where we've come from. You see, we don't realize what's behind us historically. So I think part of what I try to do, and people sometimes think, well, I'm being pessimistic. I'm not being pessimistic uh, at all because the gospel is filled with hope. It's the kind of hope that will stand up. Uh, But a lot of the optimism doesn't quite live up to biblical hope. Uh, It it would be be seriously undermined by the real anthropological facts of the situation. So what I want to do this morning is respond to the fact that we were born on third and thought we had a triple, and go back and think about religion a little bit with the help of three things, three texts. This is my little florilegia of text for this morning. One is from T. S. Eliot, one is from the marvelous manuscript called the Ancient City by Fustel de Collange, which was written at the end of the 19th century, and the other is from a passage from the Book of Leviticus. So first from Eliot. This is from Choruses from the Rock. He says. It is hard for those who live near a police station to believe in the triumph of violence. Do you think that faith has conquered the world and that lions no longer need keepers? Now, that's very Virgilian, by the way, the idea of keeping those forces in check. Then he goes on to say, Do you need to be told that whatever has been can still be Do you need to be told that even such modest attainments as you can boast in the way of polite society will hardly survive the faith to which they owe their significance? That's a pretty powerful statement. Uh, And the proof of its relevance is everywhere. And I want to come back to that uh, next week when when I talk in part at least about how this terrible terrorist incident relates to the overall crisis of the modern world so the the other thing i want to quote which is really at the heart of all of this is a it's a little cure for our naivete about the relationship between religion and violence is from fustel de colonge's work the ancient city Uh, and in there he's talking about the greco-roman culture world and the role of religion in that world here's what he says The character and the virtue of the religion of the ancients was not to elevate human intelligence to the conception of the absolute or to open to the eager mind the brilliant road at the end of which it could gain a glimpse of God. This religion was a badly connected assemblage of small creeds, minute practices, and petty observances. It was not necessary to seek the meaning of them, There was no need of reflecting or of giving a reason for them. The word religion did not signify what it signifies for us. By this word, we understand a body of teachings, a doctrine concerning God, a symbol of faith concerning what is in and around us. This same word among the ancients signified rites, ceremonies, and acts of exterior worship. The teaching was of small account. The practices were the important part, and these were obligatory. Gods, heroes, dead men, all claimed a material worship from mortals. Continuing to quote from Trustel, Man counted little upon the friendship of the gods. They were envious, irritable gods, without attachment or friendship for man, and willingly at war with him. Neither did the gods love man, nor did man love his gods. He believed in their existence, but would have wished that they did not exist. He feared even his domestic and national gods and was continually in fear of being betrayed by them. His greatest inquietude was lest he might incur their displeasure. He was occupied all his life in appeasing them. Quote. I'm going to quote one more passage from Fustel. But we have to put ourselves back in touch with that. That's what religion was. The idea of the sacred and the profane, we have it all reversed. The anthropologists realized in the last century that religion had something to do with keeping the sacred and the profane defined. But we, again, because we're on third base, <laughs> we, we, we make certain assumptions about religion. This is one of the reasons why we misunderstand the myths so much. Is because we think the myths have some grand mystical purpose when in fact they have to do with the telling of the story of the sacred violence in such a way that it doesn't that moral misgivings don't arise. Our idea of the sacred and the profane is that the sacred is this wonderful thing, which is so wonderful that you don't want to tarnish it with anything that's just ordinary. But it's not that way at all in the ancient world. The sacred is frozen violence. And if you touch it, you thaw it. And you don't want to do that. You see? And so you leave it alone. And you continue to try to keep it placated because it can easily break out. And if we were in touch with that, then we could read Virgil's poem and the thing would begin to loosen up for us. One last thing from Fustel, which really sets us up for a little reading from Leviticus. He says, quote, the slightest gesture of the one who performed the sacrifice. By the way, it's just obvious that the heart of all this is sacrifice. He talks about it earlier, but here it's so obvious that not, not much needs to be said. All these rituals have at their heart a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. So he says, the slightest gesture of the one who performed the sacrifice and the smallest parts of his costume were governed by strict rule." The nature of the victim, the color of the hair, the manner of slaying it, even the shape of the knife and the kind of wood employed to roast the flesh, all was fixed for every god by the religion of each family or of each city. In vain, the most fervent heart offered to the gods the fattest victims if one of the innumerable rites of the sacrifice was neglected. The sacrifice was then without effect the least Failure made the sacred act an act of impiety. In other words, it didn't matter what your intent was. If the ritual required that the knife be sharpened in such a way, you could do your damnedest to sharpen it in exactly that way. But if you didn't, it didn't matter how much you tried and wanted to. You see, it's all on the external. That's the one thing to note. The second thing to note is. And it has to do with the deep ambiguity of the sacred, and that is, he says, if one of the innumerable rites of the sacrifice was neglected, the sacrifice was without effect. But more than that, the least failure made the sacred act an act of impiety. So it wasn't just that it, you know, suddenly went tilt, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't take, you know, not enough memory, some kind of reject. Sorry, won't won't compute. No, exactly that. Suddenly it becomes a profanation of the sacred and you have incurred the wrath of the gods. Last sentence from Fustel. The slightest alteration in the ritual disturbed and confused the religion of a country and changed the protecting gods into so many cruel enemies. So you you realize this is why ancient societies are so incredibly... Conservative. The word conservative is not powerful enough to describe what they are in terms of their religious practices. They're totally preoccupied with not letting any slippage occur anywhere near the central sacred shrine. And we, we say, oh, well, it's superstitious. Well, you know, of course it's superstitious. But when you find this everywhere, when you find this in every society, and you find it for eons in human history... And evidence of it all around, you could say, well, they were superstitious. But how, how could it be that they were all superstitious in exactly the same way? Wasn't, isn't there some realism to this? Isn't it true that if you screw up on that sacrifice, that in fact something very terrible will happen? And they might have had a mythological or superstitious idea about what that terrible thing was. It was the, what, what resulted from it was people dead from violence. So we say, well, who performed the violence? Well, it must have been the gods. Well, now we're being superstitious, who performed the violence. You had to be human beings. Somehow, the sacrificial system, when it gives way, gives way to a social crisis that results in human violence. And it's impossible to make any sense of the anthropological data without making that assumption. And all the texts declare that that is so. This is why, if we understand this, then we can read Virgil. So... One last thing. Oh no! Actually, I have another thing. I'm going to do two more, one extra of text in my little florilege here. But the next one is from the book of Leviticus, most people's least favorite. Occasionally, my most favorite. Not really my most favorite, but I think it's full of uh, full of insight. And I'm going to quote to you a passage which is actually in my book, so I hope you're all very familiar with it already. <laughs> I'm going to... It's a text describing the vestments of the sacrificial priesthood. Aaron is the chief priest, and his sons are the priestly clan, and they are in charge of the sacrifice and the sacrificial ritual. I should say, they are the designated victims. Just to do a quick recap of what we've done before, it begins with the victim. The victim is the first object of complete social fascination. If he can extend that fascination long enough, he can gain enough social prestige to actually offer a surrogate victim in his place. So he becomes the sacred executioner, and then he presides over the social uh, unit that has come into being in the first instance at his expense. But he's established enough prestige to offer another victim. He then becomes the sacred executioner, the kind of priest-king. All the while, however, he's the designated victim. So if things really get chaotic and violent, the sentence that's hanging over his head all the time that he has all this social prestige is reactivated, and he dies. And in the Israelite world, the priests were in precisely that same situation. The earlier texts explicitly say, these priests are a substitute for the victim if the wrath of Yahweh should demand such, you see. I mean, in so many words, that's what it said. Now, if that's the case, you realize certain precautions have to be taken, and the priest would very naturally would take great precautions, knowing that if something goes awry, they would be the ones. the The image here is the image. I think I've invoked this before, but the image is the image of of these people going into where the reactor is at Chernobyl or something, or maybe before Chernobyl, realizing and dressed in these suits that cover them head to toe, you know, and protect them from all this, realizing that they're going into this place where if something goes weird, they could be dead. So here's what it says. Yahweh speaking to Moses about what's required of the priest. Quote, And you shall make a robe of ephod, all of blue, on its skirts, bells of gold, and it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, lest he die. And you shall make a plate of pure gold, and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a lace of blue. It shall be upon Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take upon himself any guilt incurred in the holy offering which the people of Israel hallow as their holy gifts. It shall always be upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So he receives all the guilt unless any, he's the designated guilty one if any guilt is incurred. He's the lightning rod, so that if it breaks out, it goes to him. And for Aaron's sons you shall make coats and girdles and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them upon Aaron your brother and upon his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall make for them linen breeches to cover their naked flesh, from the loins to the thighs they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bring upon themselves guilt and die. So you see the precaution, end quote. So that's religion in the ancient world, that kind of precaution. It has to do with violence and keeping it frozen in the sacred place. A couple weeks ago, I guess it was, I mentioned the thing from Tertullian. He says the soul is naturally Christian. I think that we can understand that anthropologically. And I suggested that there's a corollary to that, which is that the poet is potentially evangelical. That is to say, not not that the poet will become a proselytizer in any kind of explicit Christian way, but that the poet knows enough or potentially knows enough to say things that are outside of what the muses would say if the poet didn't turn him or herself over to the muses at the beginning of the poem. In other words, there's something about what the, the business of the poet, which is to, to remember the past, and to tell it in such a way that it has meaning. And the muses preside over this operation so that the poet tells a story that's absolutely riveting and, and inspiring, and we think about the past in glorious and proud ways. And the paraclete presides over that same operation so that we look back on the past and we feel contrition and the impulse to change our lives. So I would say... Tertullian's right. The soul is naturally Christian. The poet is potentially, not naturally, but potentially an evangelist. And here's the proof of it, so such as proof could be, you know. This comes from Gilbert Murray, who was a great classicist who gave Harvard lectures at the turn of the century on the rise of the Greek epic. And he has some really marvelous things. And this comes in his discussion of the Buffonia, which was an Athenian ritual in which a domesticated animal, often an ox, would be killed in the ritual. And Murray talks about the ritual details in the Buffonia. He says, bufonia, or ox murder, that's what the word means, contained an elaborate ritual for ridding the various actors in the ceremony of the guilt of the murder of their friend. Now, their friend here is the domesticated animal. We have to realize, of course, that the the ritual sacrifice of the animal is a later reenactment of a crisis in which, no doubt, a human being, who was a kinsman, died. But notice now, there's a sense that of some grave moral problem. The reason I'm mentioning it is because it shows that the soul is naturally Christian. It shows that that there is somewhere in all of this, this feeling that this is not right, what's going on. And the, the business of ritual and myth is to keep that feeling from surfacing. And here it has already surfaced, but the ritual is designed to, since it's already surfaced, the ritual is designed to quarantine it and ship it out. See, Expel that guilt. And watch how it happens. Here's Murray's description. It's an elaborate ritual for ridding the various actors in the ceremony of the guilt of the murder of their friend. Everyone concerned in the ceremony is tried for murder. Those who drew the water for the sharpening of the weapons are tried first, but they only drew the water. They did not sharpen the axe and knife. The sharpeners are next accused and produce the men to whom they gave the weapons after they were sharpened. This is a little bit like the Garden of Eden. Adam says, Eve gave me the apple. (laughs) And Eve says, well, the serpent told me, you see. (laughs) So it says, uh, so the sharpeners uh, next uh, uh, accuse the men to whom they gave the weapons. Those produce another man who struck the victim down with the axe. He, another, who cut its throat. This last man accuses the knife which is solemnly pronounced guilty and thrown into the sea. Okay? Murray goes on. And besides all this, it has been arranged that the ox shall have gone up to the altar of his own free will and eaten of sacrificial grain. And, of course, the grains were put on the altar as a way of coaxing the ox over so that later you could say, well, you know, Jesus just walked up there. So listen to this. Besides all this, it was arranged that the ox shall have gone to the altar of his own free will and eaten of the sacrificial grains, thereby showing that he wished to be slain. Further still, the dead ox is quickly stuffed, skinned and stuffed, set on its feet, yoked to a plow as if he had never been killed at all, and it had all been a bad dream. Okay? (laughs) And so then Murray says, Now what? In its ultimate element of human feeling, does all this mean? (laughs) He doesn't quite, I mean, I shouldn't condescend. I'm going to talk about how the difference between the 19th and 20th century, understanding these things later. But uh, in any event, he doesn't quite get to it, but he gets pretty close. What does all this mean? He says, when you have stripped off the hocus pocus, the theological make-believe of getting rid of pollution by a number of dodges, which can deceive no one, there remains at the back a seed of simple human feeling that the act of slaying your kinsman and fellow worker is rather horrible." End quote. Now, when Murray says kinsman and fellow worker, he's talking about the ox. With no hint, a little bit further back, there's a real kinsman and fellow worker. You see what I mean? If he had said, and the ox is a representative, no doubt, of a kinsman and fellow worker killed in past times, for which this ritual is a reenactment, then he would have had it. And he was very close to having it because of other things that he said about these kind of rituals. So he's a, he's a very important source. Well, anyway, I'm reading this because lay the groundwork for understanding the world in which Virgil lived and about which he's writing his poem. Well, since we're talking about Gilbert Murray, this would be a good time to make a point about the Aeneid And Virgil, and I'm going to go into this in a little more detail in a few minutes, but well, first of all, Virgil's poem is written at two levels, or you could say it goes off at two levels. The surface level, which tells the story, the ennobling heroic story of the long-suffering Aeneas, whose culture collapses around his ears and who goes through all these arduous trials and finally... It uh, establishes a beachhead in Italy from which later will spring the great Roman historical enterprise, which is the hope of the future. And then there's the what I think of as the undertow of the story. And the undertow of the story is that that's not really so, that there are all kinds of other things, that the thing gives way, that it costs more than it's worth and that sort of thing, and that's what makes the poem great, I think, because it fails not as a piece of literature, because it's great literature, but it fails to do what Virgil set out to do, which is he, speaking as one who uh, got an advance for writing a book and spent it in 24 hours on old debts, Virgil was commissioned to write this poem by his friends and by Augustus Caesar, he had an obligation to tell that noble story. And I think he technically met his responsibility in that regard. But I think in the course of writing it, he discovered another obligation, which was to posterity. And he met that obligation as well. But he did it much more circumspectly, lest he fail to live up to his obligation to his patrons. You see, they couldn't both be explicit because they're contradictory. What he's telling posterity is something much more sobering than what he's telling the Roman patriots. And I think he knows that. So I'll get into that a little bit later. But the point I want to make here, particularly because we've just quoted somebody of, uh, whose scholarly eminence is that of uh, Gilbert Murray, it's interesting to note that 100 years ago, the scholarship was being written on the, the Aeneid 100 years ago, was being written by people who were classicists, who read all these texts in the original, who knew Homer in the original, Horace in the original, Livy in the original, Virgil, who knew all about them, knew the history, knew the, uh, you know, everything about it. And there is virtually no mention in those critiques of the undertow of the poem. In other words, it's treated as a poem that is more or less successful in doing what it sets out to do, which is to celebrate Roman, the Roman accomplishment in history and its significance and so on. A hundred years later, people like me and you, who just go get a paperback, I mean, we, are we reading this in the original? Do we know all this thing that these guys know? No, we don't. We get a paperback version, we start thumbing through, and the undertow is everywhere. You see it everywhere. Well, obviously, the conclusion is we're smarter than they were, but I don't think that's it, of course. How do we explain that? Something else is going on. Something else is going on. And we are beginning to see things that the paraclete has worked on us for another extra hundred years. And we're now able to see things that people a hundred years ago, though they were trained to see the thing better than we, couldn't see. So in a way, the Aeneid is a kind of Rorschach test. We could give it to somebody, say, look, read this through, and we'll have a little questionnaire. How do you think it went? You know, you see, does it make you stand up and salute, or what? It reminds me of a story I once heard. I may butcher this story, but it was, I think, as I recall, it was an Irish academic who was teaching the Aeneid. And he was talking at one of his lectures about the hero of this poem. And this guy in the back, he said, well, excuse me, Professor, I'm not quite clear. When you say the hero of this poem, who exactly are you talking about? And the and, and Professor, said, well, obviously I'm talking about Aeneas. And the guy hit his forehead and said, Oh, Oh, he said, I thought he was the priest. (laughs) Because he's always whining and crying and lamenting and wishing he... And, you know, his arms are falling slack. I mean, this is the hero? (laughs) But that's because Virgil is writing this two-tiered story. And you see, all the while, these things. Well, let me include me in with the people who didn't always see these things. One never knows what one's going to discover the next time through. Robert Frost said, the thousandth time may be the charm. (laughs) But like I said, I taught this poem twice earlier, and I was much more in those days under the influence of the psychological paradigms, and I tended to, to see it psychologically. It was filled with psychological insight. But I'm chagrined now to realize that there's a conspicuous overemphasis on the breakdown of the sacrificial system in this poem, which I hardly noticed the last time through And I want to notice it now because I think it's important to note that Virgil sees, now he doesn't link them in terms of cause and effect. And that's probably just as well because to link them too explicitly, because it's very often you can't tell What's the chicken, what's the egg? When, things, when violence breaks out and the sacrificial systems collapse, do you say, well, the sacrificial systems are collapsing, therefore violence is breaking out? Or you, say, or you say, violence is breaking out, therefore the sacrificial systems are collapsing? You see, they're in a kind of a loop together. What's happening is a crisis is occurring. And two of the salient effects of the crisis are that the sacrificial system begins to go awry, begins to fail to do what it's always been able to do, And the violence that was once frozen in the sacred system is thawed. So what's interesting in Virgil's poem is that over and over and over again, it's unbelievable how often this occurs. You see sacrificial slippage going on. The sacrificial rituals are breaking down. And you see that the poem is grappling with the whole problem of violence. How do you restore order? How do you bring a... Uh, something that's broken down into a crisis situation back to order. Now, last week I just mentioned these things, and I'll just bring them up again just in passing. But I think the most explicit one, because the death of Laocoon described in chapter 2 is really a symbol for the crisis that is the destruction of Troy. And Laocoon dies, and the simile that's used to describe his death, being killed by these two serpents, is he lifts high his hideous Christ to heaven just like the bellows of a wounded bull when it has fled the altar, shaking off an unsure axe. And it sets, that's the beginning of the description of the, of the destruction of Troy. It's the thing that sets the, the whole thing in motion. I'm going to skip all the story. You can read it for your own edification, the, the story of the tragedy of Dido what we have to see about Dido is that Dido is a victim of this process. Now, Virgil does everything. He tries to meet all his obligations to his friends who are running the Roman Empire because she represents Carthage, and that's the enemy of Rome. So she has to be seen as tragic. It's to Virgil's credit that she's seen as tragic. We have great empathy for Dido, and that's because the poet is potentially evangelical. He's he has, he has an empathy for, this particular poet, poet has an empathy for victim, such that he won't just write him off. So we have a feeling for Dido. But still in all, she represents something that Aeneas has to avoid and leave behind. But let me just mention two things, the beginning and the end of the crisis of Dido. In the beginning, when she first falls in love with him, by the way, parenthetically, the other aspect of this whole anthropology is mimetic desire, which is in more in the psychological realm. And, and I'll just mention it parenthetically. Dido falls passionately in love with Aeneas, not because she falls passionately in love with Aeneas, but because Venus changes Cupid into somebody looking exactly like Aeneas's son. And Cupid, looking like Aeneas's son, comes in and throws his arms around Aeneas, and shows his great love for Aeneas in the presence of Dido, and Dido suddenly wants to throw her arms around Aeneas. It's a mediated passion, and it's absolutely explicit in the text. In parentheses, I'm not going to talk about nomadic desire, but if you analyze this book four, you see that the whole thing is mediated, and Aeneas' attraction to Dido is mediated too. She's already got a city that's in process, and it's much better from Aeneas's point of view, and even from Virgil's, to graft the Roman enterprise onto an already existing city-building enterprise because then you don't have to deal with the founding murder. It's already there, and you don't have to go back. So there's, I would say even the, at the level of the poetics of the poem, there's a kind of an itch. Wouldn't it be nice to just graft it on and not have to start from scratch? Because if you start from scratch, you're going to have to get to what he finally gets to at, the, at book 12, which is killing, in a very sacrificial way, Turnus so that the thing can begin. So let me just make a long story short. In in any event, as soon as Dido falls passionately in love with Aeneas, she begins offering all these sacrifices to the gods. Uh, First, they move on from shrine to shrine, imploring the favor of the gods at every altar. They slaughter chosen sheep, as is the custom, and offer them to Ceres, the lawgiver, to Phoebus, to, uh, to Father Bacchus, and above all, to Juno, guardian of marriage. Dido studies slit breast of beast and reads their throbbing guts. But oh, the ignorance of the augurs. How can vows and altars help one wild with love? Meanwhile, the supple flame devours her marrow. Within her breast, the silent wound lives on. Unhappy Dido burns. Across the city, she wanders in her frenzy. So there's all of this sacrificiality which has no effect. It's brought out, paraded before us, and it says it did not have any effect and then cut to the Aeneas sailing off at the end. And he sails off, and over his shoulder, this is what we see. Dido climbs to the pyre, which is, by the way, a sacrificial shrine, on which sometimes people who die naturally are burned, but in the original instance, a pyre is, in fact, a a sacrificial structure. She climbs to the pyre and falls on Aeneas's sword. And then all of Carthage is destroyed. And looking back, Aeneas uh, sees this. Now clamor rises to the high rooftop. Now rumor rides through the startled city. The lamentations, keening, shrieks of women, sound through the houses. Heavens echo mighty wailing, even as if an enemy were entering the gates, with all of Carthage and ancient Tyre in ruins and angry fires rolling across the homes of men and gods. Virgil has done a very subtle little thing here. He says, even as if an enemy we're entering the gates that's a way of saying this is the second troy and we have, we have a pattern here folks the pattern is aeneas sailing away from cities that are smoking ruins what's going on and in both of those cities there was a breakdown of the sacrificial regime and pretty soon the city was being destroyed by violence and fire which is the which is the image of utter destruction As I said before, Virgil's great hope, Virgil had lived through this kind of thing, the civil wars. His great hope was that Augustus Caesar represented a sustainable alternative to it, that the Roman structures of power could keep these forces of violence in check. And that was his only hope. He didn't hope for some kind of transformation uh, in the way in which, for example, the, the biblical tradition says that the covenant must be written on your heart that you must exchange a heart of stone for a heart of flesh, or that you must undergo a conversion, and so on and so forth. He just hoped that the structures of power in the Roman Empire would be powerful enough. And this is the passage in which that is stated. It's early on in the poem. Venus goes to Jupiter and says, What's up here? I thought we had a commission. Aeneas had a commission to go found this Rome, and now Juno is thwarting him at at every turn. What's going on? And Jupiter says, don't worry, he's going to found Rome or he's going to lay the, the foundations for Rome. And then he said, this is what Rome will do ultimately for history. The gruesome gates of war with tightly welded iron plates shall be shut fast. Within unholy rage, pure or impious, unholy rage, shall sit on his ferocious weapons bound behind his back by a hundred knots of brass. He shall groan horribly with bloody lips. This is what Rome will do. Rome will simply take all of that violence, and shut it up with power. What it's going to shut up inside this prison is unholy rage. But here's the thing, and Virgil, I think, knew it early on, and it became painfully clear to him, that what's being shut up in that prison is unholy rage, and the power that's shutting it up is holy rage. And so there you have the situation, fundamentally the situation, because the word rage, the Latin word is furor, and ultimately furor is the source of all chaos. But if it can be deputized, sacralized, then furor becomes the source of all peace, you see. It's Matt Dillon. You put a star on him, salute him, and suddenly the fastest gun in the West becomes a a source of law and order. That's Caesar Augustus. That's not exactly morally nuanced, but that's the you know there you have it. So I have this theory. I have a theory about the composition of this poem, which is based on nothing but my reading of the poem. And I've read other theories about it. I wouldn't even argue that mine's true. What I would do is I would say that a test of a theory is, does it release more of the poem's insights than a competing theory? I think and it's on the basis of that criteria that I developed this theory. And I didn't develop it. I just it just sort of came to me. Uh, and here's my theory. My theory is that Virgil set out to do what he was commissioned to do, and two things happened in the course of his composition of poem. One is that the narrative took on a momentum of its own. People who are writing narratives, they have to have a certain realism in order to be plausible, what Plato called a likely story. In achieving the kind of historical verisimilitude that Virgil achieves in this poem, I would say that the narrative began to conform to certain patterns that were now intruding into the moral message of the poem in very awkward ways. And so Virgil began to notice these things. Uh, He began to write about a crisis in a culture, and he noticed that his hand with his pen was going to... Was talking about the collapse of sacrificial systems and a kind of crazy breakdown and so on. And this was over and over and over again. Now, I'm just, I'm sort of embroidering here a little bit. But I would say that the narrative itself took on a certain momentum of its own. Writers say that, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, well, I was writing and suddenly I thought it was going someplace and it went off this way and I was just following it along. So I think there was some of that. Also, Roman history continued on. and. To some extent, the bloom was off the rose. Now, the Augustan age lasted for some time, and it it was civilizing, had a civilizing force, but somebody of Virgil's sensitivity would have been able to see early on uh, some of its potential. One thinks, for example, just to give you a biblical parallel, one thinks of Jeremiah, who railed against the the abuses of of the temple, and he... Convinced people like Josiah that the temple needed to be reformed. So Josiah reformed the temple and got it all back to absolute orthodoxy. And then everybody was so proud of the temple and so sure that the temple was the salvation of Israel that Jeremiah had to go to the door of the temple and mock them for going in because they had become so smug. You see? So I think maybe there's a little bit of this that Virgil, who's sensitive that way, begins to see as Roman history unfolds. Take, for example, the enthusiasm that many people felt when John Kennedy was elected president. Oh, this is a new age. Everything's going to change. You see, we've left it all behind. And then Vietnam. And then the cynicism and the things breaking out in the American streets and so on. And even a more graphic example, a more contemporary one, is the, is the fall of the Berlin Wall. Everybody said, hooray, it's over, the Cold War is over, we're free, everything's fine. And now, then you get the meltdown in Eastern Europe. Uh, And there's something very dark on the horizon, which seems to be a kind of a terrorist thing going on, potentially, the West against uh, other forces or something. So anyway, the history goes on. So if you have this great optimism, which Virgil had for Augustus Caesar, and suddenly the the second shoe drops, and he's in the middle of the poem. That's what I'm saying. So these things begin to impinge on him. And he realizes he has his obligation to his to those who have commissioned a poem, the people that run the Roman Empire, and to posterity, and he tries to meet both those responsibilities. Anyway, here's my theory. My theory is that he got to the end of book 12. Book 12 ends very abruptly, and Virgil was a literary genius. He could have tacked on another two or 300 lines, which would have been, made the whole thing seem marvelous, riding off into the sunset, happily ever after, the ultimate breakthrough, the triumph, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's none of that. It's like the end of the Gospel of Mark. You know, the women run away terrified. It ends like that, abruptly. So I say, Virgil could have tidied it up, and he didn't. So the question is, two questions, why didn't he? And second question is, what did he do with the spare time he had on his hands? Because he didn't. And my theory is, he went back to books 5 and 6 and inserted some things in them. Deep in the text. And not just in five and six, but elsewhere, inserted things deep in the text. now, there are things deeply inserted in the text of five and six i don 't think there's any question about that. My theory only tries to account for them. you see uh, and it's not a theory really it's not it's just for heuristic purposes it 's just a way of trying to tease this text into giving us its insight. But I think he went back to, in my mind's eye, I think he went back to the to five and six and elaborated some things that were already latent in the text. And that's what I want to look at. These things were hitting Virgil in the face. This is how I would put it. The muse wants to sing us a song. And it's one of those songs that makes goosebumps come on our flesh, you know, and makes us just want to stand up and put our hands over our heart. And we all need songs like that. I'm not putting those down. That's what the muse wants to do. The paraclete wants us to hear the cock crow. And the question is, which of those two events will do us more good? You see what I mean? And which is more historically and eschatologically significant? The muse was singing the song, the the amusing song. The music of the muses was playing in Virgil's ear, but it was being interrupted by something raucous, which was the crowing of the cock, but he couldn't hear it because he had no context for it. And that's why when these sacrificial victims die in his poem, there's no sense of the moral outrage of it. You say, oh, well, Neptune wanted that one to die. Jupiter decided that one would die. But there's no sense of how they died, no sense of looking back and seeing culpability, uh, human culpability and hearing the cock crow, recognizing one's own complicity in it. And if there is that at all in Virgil, it is the implicit recognition of his own complicity, I would say. This is giving him maximum credit. Is that when he wrote the end of Book 12, he realized that it was his bounden duty to go back and to strengthen the undertow of the poem. You could could make a comparison here between Virgil finishing Book 12 and going back to 5 and 6. And Robert McNamara, at the end of his life and career, deciding to write this book, which says, I'm sorry, folks, but we were wrong about all that. That's quite a striking parallel. I didn't see it, but somebody said that when Robert McNamara was interviewed on television, he wept when an interviewer asked him about one of these things. So in my mind, to see Robert McNamara weeping... And to see the scene of George Wallace holding hands with the people in Selma saying, I was wrong and now I'm with you. To me, those are the great images of our time. That's where hope is. It's where forgiveness and contrition and promise is. I mean, we have to always bear in mind that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we still live in it and it's still all around us. And as Eliot says, just because we live next to the police station we should not think that we're safe or that uh, it will survive the collapse of the faith that made it possible nevertheless when we see these things we should just absolutely rejoice in them and not be cynical about their durability because their durability what is that that's just as the world sees it you see what i mean now the camp david accords may have been stiff and awkward i don't know but the Camp David event, I remember looking at that and just thinking, this is amazing. Now, you could say, well, what came of it? Something came of it, but also a lot of other bad things came of it. doesn't matter. The point is, if we only judge these things in terms of their historical duration, then we miss their eschatological significance. So we can be completely joyful and completely sober about the real situation at the same time. We have to trade those things off and be either a pessimist or an optimist. Both of which seem a little silly. I was going to say the thing about truth of poetry and poetry of truth. That you listen to the muses and they want us to hear this beautiful music, and the paraclete wants us to hear this this raucous crowing of the cock and and is we're more likely to have something really happen. Dante, at the when he first gets to the Purgatorial Mountain, he's still on the shore. You know, he's just arrived there after the trips through hell. And he meets there, Casella, who was a poet in Florence, a friend of his, one of these romantic poets. Casella sang and wrote poetry and Dante was very fond of him. So he says to Casella, he says, if no new law has stripped you of your skill or of the memory of those songs of love that once could calm all my passion from my will, sing me a song. Now these songs Dante says, Once calmed my passion, I want you to sing me one of those songs that calm my passion. Now the Purgatorial Mountain is another cure for those passions. You see? It's but it's not the muse's cure. The muses have a cure for it. But it's not really a cure. It just sort of sweeps it under the rug. The purgatorial mountain is the cure. But Dante wants this, you know, the candlelight, soft music cure. And so he begins to listen to this song. And Cato Cato is a kind of, uh, he represents in the classical world a a man of supreme integrity. Cato charges over and he says, what's this, what's this, negligence, loitering, a laggard crew, run to the mountain and strip off the scruff that lets not God be manifest in you. And Dante says, exactly as a flock of pigeons gleaning a field of stubble, pecking busily, Forgetting all their priming and their preening will rise as one and scatter through the air, leaving their feast without another thought when they are taken by a sudden scare. So that new band, all thought of pleasure gone, broke from the feast of music with a start. It's marvelous. And the image here is of pigeons pecking at a field of stubble. You see? That's where food is in this little, the leavings of a stubble field. And Cato is saying, go up the mountain and cleanse it off. Don't just take a musical valium. So that's the poetry of truth and truth of poetry. When I say that Virgil went from the end of book 12 back to book 5 and 6 and and embedded some things deeper in the text that were part of his undertow of the poem, I don't mean that there was not already an existing undertow. There already was. And I think, as a matter of fact, it was building uh, as he was writing the poem. So I'll give you an example of it, and there, there are dozens of them all through the text, but one that comes about this point in, this, in the narrative, when Aeneas lands at Carthage, he's totally impressed because he's supposed to be a city builder, and he comes on this city building project, and it's perfect. You see, it's, um, everybody's working harmoniously. The, the walls are rising already. Not only that, but the uh, chief executive officer of this enterprise is a woman who is both beautiful and rich. So it just couldn't be better. And so uh, Aeneas has to be coaxed away from this later by Mercury, who comes down from Jupiter and says, no, you have to go to Italy. Meanwhile, however, he goes then into the heart of Carthage, and he sees there the shrine, the central shrine, which is the temple to Juno, his mortal enemy. On the temple are carved scenes from, lo and behold, the Trojan War. And he and his friend Achates are marveling at these scenes, and here's what happens. He wept and cried, quote, Achates, where on this earth is there a land, a place that does not know our sorrow? Look, there's Priam, the old king of Troy. Here, too, meaning Carthage, here, too, the honorable finds its due, and there are tears for passing things. Here, too, things mortal touch the mind. Forget your fears. This fame will bring you some deliverance. In other words, because we're part of all this, we will be remembered. Dante has something like this in the Divine Comedy where he says, we will be remembered as the old times. Uh, He says, we'll be remembered in this way. Our trials and hardships, like those of Priam and our our friends who died in Troy, will be remembered. Fame will come to us, too. And then the poet says, He speaks, with many tears and sighs, he feeds his soul on what is nothing but a picture, an empty picture. And that's Virgil's undertow in the poem that's already there. But it becomes very powerful and explicit in Book 5 and in Book 6, which we'll talk about next week. Aeneas sails to Sicily, where his father, Anchises, is buried, and he arrives exactly a year after Anchises dies, and so they are going to have the funeral games, which is a traditional thing. It it's mostly traditional in military combat to have funeral games, and of course Virgil gets it from Homer's funeral games for Patroclus at the end of the Iliad. The funeral games consist of sacrifices and games. But in fact the distinction between the two is never quite clear. And we have to understand this ourselves, even though this sounds not right. Uh, games, like all other cultural institutions, go back to the sacrificial system. I, I'll never forget a year ago or a little less than that. I was down at Stanford for one of these seminars, and the Stanford Museum was having an exhibit about the origins of soccer. And you may not know, but the origin, the thing they were kicking around the field was a human head. Was a human head, it reminds me of some wag said, uh, a riot broke out, it almost turned into a soccer match. (laughs) So the uh, difference between games and sacrifices is not absolute. Okay, I have one more piece of uh, anthropology to share with you before I read about the games and their finale, which is absolutely essential for understanding this poem. And it's from Girard's commentary in Violence in the Sacred on a ritual performed by the Dinka tribe in the southern Sudan. And the original field research was done by an anthropologist whose name is Godfrey Leinhart. Girard is commenting on his field research. Leinhart describes this ritual that the Dinka performed, and Girard's simply trying to think about its implications. Quote, the insistent rhythm of choral incantations, there you have the, the muses, the choral incantation. Elliot in Murder in the Cathedral, one of the priests there says, we'll never be able to understand this until the daughters of music are laid low. We'll never be able to know whether this is good or bad or what it is until the daughters of music, for Elliot, the daughters of music are obviously the muses. Back to Girard, the insistent rhythm of choral incantations gradually captures the attention of a crowd of bystanders, just what it's supposed to do, who at first appeared scattered and self-absorbed, but appearing scattered and self-absorbed is part of the ritual. It begins with everybody just kind of wandering around, No, no focus or coherence at all, and then participants begin to brandish weapons in mock warfare. A few isolated individuals strike out at others, but without any real hostility. In these preparatory stages, violence is therefore already present in a ritual form, but it is still manifestly reciprocal. The ritualistic imitation deals first with the sacrificial crisis itself, with the chaotic antecedents to the unanimous resolution. So first it's just kind of random, and then the choral incantations begin, and it begins to take a focus, and it forms into into hostile groups performing mock warfare. And then Gerard says, from time to time, somebody detaches himself from the group to beat a cow or calf that has been tied to a nearby stake or to hurl insults at it. So here's, imagine this, two groups moving at each, on each other in a ritual way, imitating combat, a mock combat, and every once in a while, somebody breaks off from one or the other of the groups and goes over and beats a cow and comes back in or hurls an abuse or accusation at the cow and comes back in. Now, remember, in the Gospel, it says, Pilate and Herod became friends who had been enemies before. In other words, you have the hostilities are set up, and this could be, without that cow or calf tied up over there, this could be the civil war. You see? But that's the outlet. So that's happening. And then Girard says, there's nothing static or stilted about the performance. It succeeds in giving shape to a collective impulse that gradually triumphs over the forces of dispersion and discord by bringing corporate violence to bear on a ritual victim. In this rite, the metamorphosis of reciprocal violence into unilateral violence is explicitly and dramatically reenacted. And it seems to me that it can be seen to hold true for an infinite number of rites if one keeps a sharp eye out for signs that reveal the functioning of this particular metamorphosis." Which is what I want to show. Exactly that same kind of procedure is being referred to here in Virgil's poem. First of all, in the games themselves, and I'll be very brief about the games because I want to get to the finale, which is really key. But the games are a ship race, a foot race, a boxing match, an archery contest, and so on. And games are rituals, and they're rituals in which One sets up rivalry and competition in a very carefully constructed environment so that it won't get out of control, and it's highly ritualized and regulated with rules and procedures and so on, again, so that it won't get out of control, so that it gives vent to all of the rivalistic impulses in a culture, but it it then grounds them. The whistle blows and it's over, you see? Or the victim dies and it's over, or everybody makes fun of the loser, or everybody, you see, somehow something happens and it's over. So it's a kind of social hygiene. It brings up all the competition and rivalry, gives it a focus which is socially tolerable, and burns it off. What I want to note is, in each of these, there are sacrificial elements that intrude. They're very obvious. So the sacrificial thing is interwoven, but the really explicit sacrificial things come into play in the foot race and the boxing match. In the foot race, remember now Laocoon's unsure axe, which is associated with the sacrificial breakdown and the destruction of Troy. Here they're racing, and Nisus is in the lead. And it says, almost at the end and tired out, they all are near the goal when luckless Nisus slides on some slippery blood that had been spilled by chance, carelessly, where steers were slaughtered, soaking both the ground and the grass. Even as the youth rejoiced in victory, the earth slid out from under him, and he could not hold fast his stumbling footsteps. Nysus fell headlong upon the filthy slime itself and in the sacrificial blood. You see, it was spilled accidentally. And somebody slipped in it. And now it's filthy slime. And later on, Nisus will die in another event for which this is the prefiguration. Finally, the, it becomes more explicit in the boxing match. There are two boxers, Darius, who's a kind of big muscle-bound guy, and he's a blowhard. He's talking about how he's going to beat everybody. Nobody wants to challenge him. And finally, there's this Sicilian, elder Sicilian guy whose name is Intellus. And Intellus says, well, okay, I'll come out of retirement, I guess, to take this guy on. And he puts on these very heavy... Uh, ox-leather, lead-lined gauntlets, which are what you box with, and this uh, young guy throws him down, and he gets him riled up, you know, this is the classic grade B movie story, gets him riled up, and he starts to just beat this guy unmercifully, and finally Aeneas calls it all off and gives first prize to Entellus, the the old champion, and here's what happens. Entellus says to Aeneas, you, goddess-born, and you, the Trojans, learn... From what a death you have just rescued and recalled your dairies. He spoke, and then he faced the contest prize, the bullock standing nearby. Drawing back his right hand, straight between the towering horns, he planted his tough gauntlets. He smashed the bones, dashed in the brains. The ox was flat. It trembled, lifeless on the ground. Intellus above the ox pours these words from his breast. Oh, Erics, that was his boxing teacher, unto you I offer up this better life instead of Dary's death, end quote. So it's a sacrificial thing. So all I'm trying to say here is that the sacrificial innuendos are, uh, it's shot through with sacrificial innuendos These games. Now, what I want to talk about is the finale, which is really key. This is the part I think comes after book 12 is was' has been written. It's the Troy games. And the Troy games were something that went on in Roman history for a long time. It was young boys, military, it was part of military training. It was part game, part military exercise, part entertainment for the Roman population. It was a little spectacle for which these young boys trained. Virgil writes a version of this back into his story. At the end of these other contests, there's this display of uh, talent on the part of these young boys. There are three groups. One of them is headed by Ascanius, Aeneas' son, and then by two other notable young Trojan boys. Here's what happens. And I'm taking the text out of context a little bit. I said Virgil buried this counter theme deep in the text. And I think one of the ways he did it is by his textual sequence. And I think if we rearrange his textual sequence so that to put them in another order, weight always goes to the final thing, you see. I think he reversed the order in a way. I think he put the final thing first and then the other things later so that it would be more disguised. So I'm going to reverse the order uh, and read them this way and and try to show the significance of what he's done. Here's Virgil describing the games. These boys are in squadrons. Quote, they rode apart to right and left in equal ranks. The three squadrons had split their columns into two separate bands and then Called back again, they wheeled around and charged like enemies with level lances. You see, this is like the Dinka ritual where you have a reenactment of a war. Now they start new marches and counter marches in the space between them, and interweaving circle into circle in alteration, armed, they mime a battle. And now they bear their backs in flight, and now peace made between them gallop side by side. What's fascinating, I think, to Virgil here, is that you have order and conflict at the same time. What's fascinating about this is the precision, which is simply order that is so orderly it's stunning. And what's less visible is that that order is made possible by hostility. Now I'm going to break the textual sequence. A little few lines later, Virgil says, Ascanius renewed in later days this way of riding, these contests, when he girded Alba Longa with walls and taught the early Latins how to celebrate these games, as he had done beside the Trojan boys when he was young. The Albans taught their sons. And after them, Great Rome received these games and carried on this same ancestral celebration. Now the boys are called Troy and their band, the Trojans." This sounds very wonderful. Ascanius took it to Albalonga. The Albalongans brought it to, to the Romans. The Romans now are continuing to do it. This is really quite marvelous. This thing is going on and on. Not only that, now I'm going back into the text, not only that, but the boys love it. You see, there's a, he has two similes to describe what's going on in this pageant. And the first is this. They interweave in sport of flight and battle, like dolphins, which when swimming liquid seas will cleave the Libyan and Carpathian deeps and play among the waves. In other words, the boys are, really love this thing. Now, this is like a parent looking out the kitchen window and seeing your children, usually your male children, playing with guns, shooting each other, and having the greatest time in the world. In order to get in touch with what's happening, I think, to Virgil right now, is you have to see this. It's hallowed, it's ancient, it's marvelous, it's precision, it's order. It's the kind of order that Virgil wanted to come out of the uh, Roman enterprise. It's a marvelous thing. It's a tradition. It's been handed down. Not only that, the boys, when they're doing it, absolutely love it. They want to do it. They line up, you know, they can't wait to do it. It's perfect. Now, here's the second simile. And this is Virgil planting it deep into his text. And I think it's after he's written book 12. To go back, you have to pick up the, the, the text. It says, They mime a battle, now they bear their backs in flight, and now peace made between them gallop side by side. As once, in ancient days, so it is said, the labyrinth in high Crete had a path built out of blind walls, an ambiguous maze of a thousand ways a winding course that mocked all signs of finding a way out, a puzzle that was irresolvable and irretraceable, in such a course, so intricate, the sons of Troy maneuver. That's amazing, you know. It's order, it's fabulous, they love it, it's everything good, and suddenly it's a total prison. Now, imagine looking out your kitchen window. You see your, you see your kids out there playing this game. They love it. You realize, oh, well, I did that when I was a ki- child, and my grandchildren probably will, great-grandchildren. And then it suddenly hits you what that means. You see, that's a personalized version, I think, of what hit Virgil here. He realizes that some, and to put it in the kind of anthropological lingo that I've been using, he realizes that some kind of sacrificial mechanism is going to have to be at work in any hope that the Roman enterprise holds out to the world. It's simply going to have to be that kind. At this very moment, Juno inspires Iris to come down and inflame the old Trojan women with the inspiration to go down and burn the ships. They're tired of Traveling, They, why don't we stay here? Where are we going? It's like the Israelites in the desert, you know. And they go down and set fire to the ships. And Aeneas prays to Jupiter who brings a rain and it puts most of the fires out, but four of the ships are lost. Now, let's see what that four means. Iris disguises herself as one of the Trojan women and she says the following to them. Here are four altars raised to Neptune, The God himself gives us the will, the torches. And shouting this, she is the first to snatch the deadly fire with force. And swinging back, she lifted her arm. She strives, then brandishes and flings the flame. She has stunned the minds, dismayed the Trojan women's hearts. The text says the old women, quote, snatch fire from the inner hearths, meaning the sacrificial altar, And others strip down the altars, flinging leaves and branches and firebrands. So you have four sacrificial altars, four ships are destroyed. So again, the interweaving of of sacrificial slippage and social crisis is everywhere. Okay, now here, the reason I got into that very briefly is because Venus then goes to Neptune and says, look, Juno's at it again. We have to do something. Isn't there something we can do? And Neptune, in his absolute uh, divine serenity, says the following. My mind is still as kind toward the Trojans, so set your fear aside. Just as you ask, Aeneas will safely reach the harbor of Avernus in Italy, and you will only have to mourn one Trojan, one lost within the eddies of the sea, one life shall be enough instead of many." Absolutely explicit. Uh, Fitzgerald says, one life given for the many. The Latin is unum promultis dabitur caput, head, one head for everybody else. It's just going to cost you one head. It's the Caiaphas formula. Better that one should die and the whole nation should be destroyed. It's perfect. And now you realize, here's Virgil right at the midpoint in his poem and you look back and you see when they got out of Troy, Cruisa, uh, Aeneas' wife died, when they left Carthage, Dido died, when they survived the storm, Orontes died. You see, every time it's one head, you see, now it's just now declaring itself in the middle of the poem, but it's been there all the while. And the next thing is that the spotlight focuses on the next victim, which is Polyneurus, the pilot of Aeneas' flagship. In a sense, Virgil's despair is the great thing of this poem because the Troy games were an example of what was best about Rome, you see. Order, discipline, everything good about Pax Romana. And when Virgil sees them as being a labyrinth made of blind walls, an ambiguous maze of a thousand ways, a winding course that mocked all signs of finding a way out, he's recognizing something very powerful. And you could say, well, it's a very despairing thing. He realizes that he can't get out. But his poem represents, I would say, a cry for deliverance. And that's what makes it so powerful. So that if you read that and then turn to St. Paul, and St. Paul, who heard, the, in a sense, you know the voice on the road to Damascus is just a very explicit focused version of hearing the cock crow. Uh, St. Paul had heard that, and he had experienced liberation. What St. Paul says is, we're free, we're free of all of that. We're free of all of that all of that uh, religious terror and fear that that gripped us before. We're free of all of the structures that were symbolized by the Troy game. I think what Virgil found out is that the marvelous song of the muses leads you into a trap. And what Paul found out a few decades later was that the raucous crow of the crowing of the cock can lead you into freedom. And that summarizes the theme of our series.